I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Beverly Conyers, author of Addict in the Family, Support Through Loss, Hope, and Recovery. Almost half of the U.S. has a family member or close friend who has or is currently struggling with an addiction problem. With stress at an all-time high, oftentimes we feel hopeless as to how to help our loved one. A mother of an addict and best-selling author, Beverly Conyers, offers wisdom and insight to families who have walked this road. She draws on research, experience, and compelling stories from others to explain what families should know about substance abuse, interventions, relapse, and more. She's one of the most respected voices in recovery, whose books have been used in addiction facilities across the U.S. And through her book, she hopes to reduce the stigma of addiction to help families and friends develop effective coping strategies. Welcome to the show, Beverly. Nice to have you on. Thank you so much for having me, Catherine. I appreciate it. Great to have you on. As you start out or as you describe in your book, if you have an addict in the family, addiction is a family disease. It involves the whole family. And you have have an addict in your family, so you are the expert uh, in how families cope with addiction. Let's start with that. Um, an addict in the family. It's a family disease. Yeah, it it um, it affects everyone who cares about that addicted person. Um, when I first, um, it's been about twenty years now since I learned that my daughter was addicted to heroin. And um, at first, you know, I thought this is her problem, and if I can get her into the right setting, the right counseling, the right treatment, um, the problem will be solved, and we can move on. But um, what I didn't realize is that addiction is usually a long-term problem. It's not usually something that, you know, comes and goes quickly. And as the addiction uh, continues, uh, these behaviors emerge that are incredibly confusing and frightening for, for family members to, to deal with. It's almost like their addicted loved one has become a different person. Yeah, that's what and you so, describe in the book, not only in your experience, but also the others. And you give lots of different uh, family stories about addiction, uh, mothers, right. fathers, children. Now, your daughter, this was your youngest daughter. And as, yes. I, as, as I remember from the book, you said it, it took you two years to really accept the fact that she had an addiction problem. A lot of denial, denial on her part, but also denial on your part that you had an addicted daughter. Yes, and that's one of the ways uh, that that um, that what happens to family mirrors what's happening to the addict because denial really is the bedrock of addiction. The, the person who's addicted never thinks the problem, never thinks they have a problem, or if they know they have a problem, they think it's minimal and it's something they can handle. But uh, the family members also live in denial. And I used to think, oh, well, she's depressed or... You know, she, she's just stressed out about um, this or that. It, 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 the idea that she was actually addicted never crossed my mind. And my denial was so intense that I remember seeing her one time. She wasn't living with me at that time, and, and um, I'd been worried about her health, and she'd gone to the doctors at my urging, and I saw all these scabs on her inner arm, and I asked her what it was. 
And she said, oh, the doctor's not sure. Well, I found out about six months later that she was a heroin. We're, we're injection marks. But part of my brain just could not accept that. I couldn't process that. So I accepted her story. I'm making the assumption that your daughter uh, was your family, uh, I'll say a middle-class family. This is your youngest daughter. People often say, like, how did, what was the, how did she, how did she become a heroin addict? Was she, could you, were there indications when she was a little girl that she had behavior problems? I mean, is it a slip? slippery slope or is it insidious or is there some crisis that happens it's sort of this how does it happen how did it happen to you boy that is the that's the million dollar (laughs) question it's the question that I asked myself over and over and it's a question that um that anyone who's who's kid becomes addicted asks themselves how did it happen how did I miss the signs um how did did I do something that caused it and um in terms of my daughter, there were certainly things that happened in uh, in our family. There was a divorce, and, and I know that was traumatic for her. So for years I thought, well, that must have been what did it. It did some kind of damage to her psychologically, and therefore she became an addict. But in reality, no one can cause someone else to become an addict. And it's, um, it's something... I, a research shows that there's a genetic vulnerability to addiction in some people. Since not everyone who has a trauma becomes an addict. Uh, so there's a genetic component. And also about um, 80% of people who are addicts started using drugs as teenagers. And as teenagers are... are and were more vulnerable to substances. And my daughter did start experimenting with pot and other drugs as a teenager. So your ba- and, yeah, your brain is not uh, full before eighteen. That what prefrontal cortex? I guess it is. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's it's not developed, so your judgment isn't as good as is not it hasn't reached its peak your cho- you make poorer choices all of those kinds of things it almost sounds like when you talk about you have a predisposition to being an addict whether it's heroin or alcohol yeah. uh, that you kind of have to have a little bit of the perfect storm maybe there are lots of components to it it's not just that uh, you have the gene or you don't have the gene um, there are a lot Absolutely. of other yeah Absolutely. It is like the perfect storm. It's the, the, the vulnerability, the environment, um, the, the, the people you're hanging out with, the, um, and, and whatever's going on within your own brain. And it becomes reinforcing because the more you use it, um, the more you need it. Every, every addict I've ever talked to and I've talked to a lot of people who are in recovery, and they've all said that their first experience with substances, um, whatever they became addicted to, whether it was cocaine or alcohol or heroin, that they felt, this is what I've been waiting for all my life. It seemed to complete them. They fell in love with it. So it's that feeling of euphoria, calming your anxiety, 
all of those kinds of things. And then yeah. you have to, have, yeah. And then you have, then eventually it changes the, your brain chemistry as you yes. talk about in the book. And by the way, I have to say, Beverly, your book is really good because it explains that ba- brain chemistry. It explains the, the psychosocial dynamics in a way that this book is great for, for everyone. It, it's, it, you know, yeah, it's not thank just, written, you. yeah, not just written for professionals and social workers and psychologists. It really is something that uh, can be very helpful to families. I want to talk about the shame, because I think that seems to be a pervasive Can thing. I just say one more thing before yeah, we move on to that? When you were you're talking about um, the anxiety, I think it goes even deeper than that. Uh, there's an emptiness, this inner emptiness. I remember driving my daughter to her first um, rehab, and she sat beside me, and she looked so small, and she, and she said, I just feel so empty inside. And um, Carolyn Knapp, who wrote a beautiful book, um, Drinking a Love Story, talked about that inner emptiness that she said every addict has felt, that there's just something missing. And if the substances don't fill it up, then what will? So it's, it's, it's an incredibly powerful need for something more in their life. And you'll hear the same description for addicts who are addicted to food. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, you know, it, does, it, it doesn't necessarily... Just searching for something that, that will give you some sense of completeness or wholeness. Do and who knows why, why that is so powerful in some people. So I guess then we have to really say, take a look at our kids. Is there any way to predict who the vulnerable one is going to be? Uh, it's interesting. Um one counselor I talked to um, who worked in a center that counseled family members and and people with addiction um, said that in her experience, there's when you look at the kids, you know, going even in elementary or middle school, something a little bit different about them or just they don't quite fit in not in a way that would make them bullied, but just they don't quite um, fit in with, uh, with the activities or the, the general behaviors of their peers. There's something slightly different. And I did find that with my daughter. I also found that she was incredibly sensitive, easily hurt, easily moved to tears, extremely compassionate. So it's almost as if she felt the pain of the world, even as a young kid. She incorporated that into And so I think that vulnerability, that sense of being a little bit different, is something that, I don't know, I don't know that there's any studies to back it up, but my experience is that parents I've talked to have said how, how talented their addicted kid is and what beautiful poetry they write or, you know, how much... They care about other people. So I don't know if that's a predictor, but it's, it's a quality that, that's fairly common. What about sort of fast-forwarding when the addiction takes hold and then there you are, the parent, trying to get your kid to stop? And we're, um, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be a child. Obviously, it can be a partner. It can be anybody. Right, right. But uh, we're talking in this case because that's your experience with your daughter. Uh, right. 
the person who has the addiction begins to has tools to uh, engage you and uh, it's, it doesn't make you an enabler, but they engage you so that you for, and I'm going to talk about some of these because as a social worker, I think it's it's important to discuss these, but it's manipulation. Manipulation is a mm. big part of, of the behavior pattern of an addict. And, totally. Yeah. So let's, what does that mean in manipulation? How does your kid start manipulating you when they're into drugs, alcohol, whatever the addiction is? Oh, they are master manipulators. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, you know, beyond anything I, I could have ever anticipated. But um, one way my, my daughter manipulated me was um, through pity. I felt so sad for her. I felt so sorry for her because her life was so miserable. And so I, I would do just about anything to alleviate her pain. So um, feeling sorry for her meant, you know, that I would help her, well, buy a car for her because she needed transportation, or I'd give her money to help her because she hadn't had anything to eat in days. And um, so, so pity was one of them. Um, also blame. When she could say to me, the reason I have this problem is because you were a horrible mother. I immediately felt such guilt because I could look back at myself and say, yeah, I did fail you in so many ways. I really did mess up a lot of times. And, and so, yeah, I caused this, and therefore I owe you everything, and you're not responsible for anything because I have to fix it. And if I don't fix it, then it'll always be broken. So the manipulating me out of, from guilt... And I would imagine also the fear that your daughter, in your case, could be fearful that she's going to kill herself, that she's going to get involved in activities and with people that are a danger to her life. And so, I yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and fear is kind of, you know, at the bottom of everything, you're right, because we know that it's deadly. We know that you know, tens of thousands of people, close to 100,000, I think, are now dying of drug overdoses every year. So, yeah, fear that she's going to die. So anything to, to just keep her alive a little bit longer until she can you know, get better, it, it's, a, it's, a terrifying, it's a terrifying thought. When you don't know where they are, you know that they're doing something that's life-threatening. So, yeah, so it's have- easy to... To just believe what, what she says rather than challenge her, make her angry, maybe drive her away. So in other words, you're taking on all the responsibility for her behavior and her choices, and she's helping you to do it. Absolutely. At what point, there are parents out there listening to your story, feeling the same way that you did. At what point mm-hmm. do you say, <clears throat> are you able to establish and how do you do this? emotional, and maybe even physical boundaries? I think, um, I think that it, for me it was a long process, but you mentioned shame earlier, and I think shame is also a, a 
strong manipulative tool because if you feel ashamed of yourself, you feel ashamed of your child, you feel ashamed of your situation, then you're, you're just both stuck in this ugly cycle of blame and shame and you can't get out of it. But when you realize that addiction actually is a disease, the brain is not functioning correctly, there's a problem there, then you can kind of step back and say, wait a minute, what do I need to do to deal with this more effectively? Instead of getting caught up in the emotion of it, if you can say, I I need to, first of all, establish some sense of reality. You know, what it... My own reality of what I will and won't accept in my own house, the reality of what kind of treatment I will and won't accept from someone else, and the reality of what is my responsibility and what is your responsibility. Just because someone is sick doesn't mean that they don't have the responsibility to take care of themselves and to get the help they need. I've so spoken. those boundaries... Uh, really are so critical because once you say you are responsible, you're empowering that person and that's a wonderful step forward. This is your responsibility, not mine. Then it, I would seem it would behoove you, you really need to go and get help yourself, for yourself, to be able to do that. And there are organizations, and you talk about those in the book. Maybe tell us about the one that was the most helpful to you or, so that you were able to begin to make the separation and establish those boundaries. Yeah, that was, um, I, I swear that group saved my life, maybe my daughter's life. It was an Aranon group. Um, it's like Al-Anon, but for uh, people with, um, whose loved one is addicted to narcotics. Or drugs, and um, it was just a group of people whose most of them were parents, but not all of them. Some of them it was their spouse who would be there to listen, to share their own experiences, to empathize, to show compassion, and to remind you over and over: detach with love. Let this person find their own way. Be supportive. Let them know you love them. Always let them know you care and you believe in them, but you can't do it for them. And those meetings, uh, we met once a week on Tuesdays, and, and all week long I would just you know, hang on to that meeting because it was what kept me sane during those first years. Um, it was so wonderful to have that support of people who'd been there and some of them who were still there. When you say they were still there, can you ever recover, completely recover from being an addict, or are there always going to be triggers that can stimulate that feeling and the person wants to get back to that drug of choice, whatever it is? I personally believe that, that if someone is an addict, no matter how long they're in recovery, there's that vulnerability. And I've heard that from many addicts, and uh, my daughter herself had a a very long period of 
of um, recovery and then relapsed, and she's back in recovery again, thank goodness. But um, I, I do believe that there is that vulnerability and that in the, in the perfect storm, as you said earlier, it could trigger a relapse. And that's why so many people in recovery, you know, go to meetings, 12-step meetings or whatever kind of support groups they find because they know that they need that to stay on track. So it's something, it's a chronic, if we can use the word, but it's kind of, it's Mm -hmm. a a chronic condition, a chronic disease. It is. It is a chronic disease and there are lots of other chronic diseases that people deal with uh, that were more that we don't necessarily feel ashamed about and diabetes and heart disease and cancer and this has to be included. Absolutely. It's so true. I know I remember it, yeah. I remember interviewing a man who worked at a um a shelter and he'd been a street person and and a, someone who's an addict and lived on the streets for many years and uh, he and today he's a counselor working with people who you know, are trying to get off drugs. And he told me that he realized that he could, that there was no such thing as, you know, it's over and done with when a counselor of his relapsed after, he said something like 30 years of being in recovery. He said he OD'd and he said, I thought to myself, if he can, if that can happen to him, it can happen to anybody. So I don't know any people in recovery who take their recovery for granted because they know that it's it's something they have to manage their entire life. So you have to stay in the moment. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think as the 12-step programs, you know, control, uh, take responsibility for those things that you can and those things that you can't. You have to let go of them. Um, mm-hmm. What has been the reaction, let's say, to your other children? Because right in the beginning of the interview, I said, this is a family disease. So you've obviously been talking about the impact it's had on you and what you've done. But what about your other two children? My other kids um, were are older, and they were not living at home when, when my younger daughter started going through all this. So it wasn't that uh, same... You know, day-to-day interaction that I have heard other parents talk about. I know that a lot of parents have said, you know, that the other kids have been jealous, like, you know, all your attention's on this person with the addiction, how about me? Because it can just take over your whole life. Um, and, And other kids can be resentful that so much money or attention is being focused on this person who continues messing up. So it can cause a lot of sibling friction. In my situation, my kids um, were not even living in the same state. So they were concerned, but um, they were not greatly affected. They were saddened. And today my daughter is um, sort of mending relationships with them or, or trying to be closer to them. And uh, we did a family vacation this summer for the first time in ages, and um, it was wonderful to have everyone together. And they're happy for her that her life is, you know, getting on track. So there are differences, is, is what you're saying. There are some things, and we've been talking about those, that are very 
uh, similar in terms of the uh, in terms of the person who is the addict in the family. But then there are unique differences as well, depending on how many children there are, what the family dynamics yeah, are, the family the dynamics, the family, yeah. family situation. Yes. Yeah. So you have if to be aware of that. If they had been living at home when, when I was going through all this, uh, it, it probably would have been quite different. Uh, would you recommend, I, I have worked with families who are uh, in, in an alcoholism treatment center in a rehab hospital um, quite a few years ago. And uh-huh. uh, we always recommended that people go to, like you're saying, like Al-Anon, but also seek individual counseling or therapy at the same time, doing both. Did you, have mm-hmm. you, yeah, have you done that? Has that been helped? If you have, was Absolutely. that helpful? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, I had, I had, um, I was lucky to find a wonderful counselor who was very knowledgeable about addiction and um, who had actually worked with women who had been prostitutes you know, during their years of addiction, so she understood what it can do to people, but she was um, also very understanding of what it can do to families, and she was wonderful, and so I could run things by her and, um, you know, get some really wise um, input from her. It was very, very helpful. I think you have to find the right person, someone who actually understands addiction, I think that's true. I think that's true. And and anytime you are seeking counseling or therapy, mm-hmm. there has to be a chemistry between you and the therapist. Plus, also yes. you have to trust that they have the knowledge. And all that stuff right. goes together, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. They have well, to know about the issue that that is concerning to you, because really it was helping me to cope with my feelings of guilt and failure, and. Um, desperation of, of the need to fix her, to figure out how to solve her problems. You know, that was the focus for so long. And so it's kind of complicated. But as you say in the book, you know, uh, you know, you have to nagging and blaming and trying to fix it. If that worked, there would be no other, I thought this was a pretty good quote, uh, that uh, there would be no more addicts because it's true. parents are really good at that, <laughs> nagging, blaming, <laughs> fixing, right? Uh, so we know that doesn't work. Right. Like, what's wrong with you? Can't you see what this is doing to your life? Just stop it. Yeah, exactly. We have one minute left. So give us a, because I, we want people to read this book. It really is, uh, it's a really great adjunct, I would say, to the therapies we've been talking about. There are mm-hmm. a lot of other stories in the book besides your story. So, right. yeah. So tell us, um, just give us a website to go to for more information. Well, the um, the book is available just about anywhere that, that books are sold. And um, if people did want to contact me, I they could reach out to the Hazelden Betty Ford Center. Um, with they they always forward any emails that I get from readers. Um, I just don't have a social media presence at this time. Maybe I'll reconsider. <laughs> But um, right now, Hazel and Betty Ford is the best way to reach me. But the book is available just about anywhere. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show, Beverly, and sharing your story. We really appreciate that. 
Oh, I appreciate it so much. It's been great talking with you. Thank Thank you you so much. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 